0: Hello, and welcome to the MLM.com podcast, brought to you by InfoTrack Systems. I'm your host, Kenny Rollins. As we started last week, we are doing a year in review podcast where we feature quotes and insights from all of the guests that we've had over this past year. Let's jump right back into it. Here are some more insights from our guests over the past year. We're going to stay with Steve Hooper again for our next quote, uh, talking about growth and the risks that are involved in growth um, and, and how, uh, how you channel that growth.
1: If you just go through that again, I mean, we've touched on there's a plan. And that plan's got to be strategic in nature. It's not just a number. There's got to be a plan of, of how we're going to do that. It has to be realistic, which means it's, it's measurable, it's attainable, and the activities that are going to drive and help us get there. There are then milestones that as we achieve those milestones, those become triggers for other activities. And and then the one that we've really got to make sure is that there's a continuous evaluation and assessment of how we're doing. And with those in place, you can look and you can grow. It won't always be pretty. I mean, that's the thing, growth. You can think, wow, every company wants growth. Growth is not always pretty. Uh, You know, growth can be very difficult because, again, the entire organization all the way through a field organization, all the way through supply chain, everyone is growing along with you.
0: My personal background comes from compensation and promotions, and so that's a topic that's always dear to my heart. Uh, One of the guests that I enjoyed having on this year was Sam Glasner talking about the role of promotions and incentives. Um, and figuring out how they can best incentivize specific behaviors.
2: What type of promotion or contest is going to really strike it hot with the, with the audience that you're going after and, and will really move the needle. Um, and in my experience, the, the promotions and incentives that, that I've seen that have been successful have a couple um, key elements that are involved. Um, One of the one of the one of the key elements is uh, a behavior. You need to identify a behavior that you want to um, affect or or motivate or give an incentive to whether it's uh, recruiting or sponsoring, whether it's sales, whether it's advancement, uh, advancements through a plan. I think oftentimes we make the mistake, and 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 we say, "Hey, we have extra inventory of this product," or, "Hey, we want to give away a bag," or "We want to give away this um, swag item." Let's let's come up with something for people to do to earn this. Um, I think if we can identify the behavior first, uh, and then put a reward on that behavior or towards an incentive for people to do that behavior, um, starting at point A and going to point B as opposed to the other way around, that's, that's the first step. And then once you know the behavior that you want, if you can identify a reward that justifies or, or, or that that is um, comparable to the work that needs to be done to earn the reward, right, so that the work justifies the reward, um, that's also key because you don't want to ask people to go sponsor 20 people and then give them a, a recognition pin for it, right. Or a, or a, some sort of trinket. You want the, you want the reward to be substantial enough so that people are excited and, and that it generates hope and, uh, potential for them to, right. It has to, the reward has to be within reach. So,
0: so I think that's key is, is having a reward, having the, the work justify the reward One of the topics that's not unique specifically to the MLM space, but is something that MLM companies have to take extremely serious, is fraud prevention. One of the guests we had this year was Trent Sprawling, who helped us to understand the future of fraud prevention uh, and what companies need to to do to continue to address that.
3: Yeah, I mean, it is pretty common for people to say, you know, when you think about preventing fraud, oh, is that card valid or is it on a stolen list or is it, you know, a real card? Well, you know, honestly, that's we can I we can go online right now and buy a stolen identity with the name, their address, their email, their spouse's name, their their kids, what you can get so much scary how much data they can get. Five years ago, merchant's account would say, oh, yeah, we could tell when we were getting fraudulently, you know, fraud attempts hitting our website because, you know, the the off percentage of passing the authorization was pretty low. Well, those very same merchants now come to us and say, oh, yeah, we actually look at all of the orders that were approved for off because all of our fraudulent attempts pass off. In fact, good customers don't pass off pass authorizations as much as our fraudsters do now so it's not reliable there's going to be we're on pace for four billion records being breached and stolen this year alone so when it comes to stopping fraud you cannot rely on oh it's this name match this address does this name align with this card because it will unless you know it's a kid and grandma's basement just trying to see what he can do and you know it's kind of like dummy fraud as we called it but the common real deal fraud we're dealing with they have all that information so what CAP helps add and what merchants really need is digital behavior um, analytics about how data points are being leveraged and where we've seen them and how they've been utilized to identify patterns and behavior of use of these identities to then identify, hey, you know, we're not saying that this name doesn't go with this card, but what we're saying is we see 15 other credit cards or four other devices uh, associated with 35 emails associated with this order that's coming through and we see all these other behaviors and patterns that are pretty indicative of fraud suspicion. So if I had to boil it down, you can't rely on clear-cut database you know, like, you know, is this a legit card or something? That that's you're not gonna catch the fraud that way in today's world. They're way past that. It's you gotta grab whatever piece of data you can about their behavior and how they're acting and the use of the data points.
0: Here's a quote from Mitch Stoll, who's also at InfoTrack Systems, talking about how we measure compensation plan effectiveness. And what are some of the things that companies need to take into consideration when they're analyzing their own compensation plan.
4: One of the reports that we do is a, what we call a forward retention report. And we look at a particular month of everyone that could have had volume or had earnings and or just purchased product. And then we go forward six months and we break out everybody based on what their earnings were from zero to 10, whatever it is. And we go forward for six months and look how many of them purchased every month. And one of the things that we've really learned from all of that is that a, a company's sweet spot is usually not where they think their sweet spot is. This company had this plan of, or this training that they did of go for gold. And their whole focus was get the leaders to train people, to get people in, and to do these certain things to get to gold. And but when we did the analysis with the forward retention report, we found that the sweet spot was about $3 to $500 of and that actually becomes the sweet spot for the majority of companies. But we found that if they could get people to that $300 level, earning $300 a month, that the retention was anywhere from 85 to the low 90% for those six months. And so we looked at changing the build strategy. Sticking
0: with compensation, here are two quotes from Mark Rollins on the role of compensation and how we should think about compensation uh, in being more thoughtful and cohesive in our compensation strategies.
5: What percentage of total compensation is going to social enrollers? what percentage of total compensation is going to salespeople, uh, sales leaders, dream builders, lottery winners, and retirees. And then you can start to compare across industry norms. And that's something that we're very enthused about, we're working very hard on, is to get these industry norms sort of nailed down, So that we can tell our client, hey, you know, here's where where you fit, because we have salespeople who earn as little as five or six percent of of the wholesale dollar, or uh, and uh, or little as five or six percent of the earnings, and then you have companies where the salespeople earn fifty percent of the earnings. Um, and what's right, what's wrong? You know, within a range, it depends on your product, but if, you, if the salespeople are earning 100% of the earnings, then you're not really a direct selling company as we know them today. And if a salesperson is earning 5% of earnings, then you're not really a product-focused sales company. But there is, I think, one thing that people, that companies can look at that I don't think a lot of companies do look at. It's salespeople and emerging sales leaders. So people who are earning a few hundred dollars a month, how many of those people stay with you without growing to the next level? because the majority of your company's salespeople will always be salespeople. Some percentage will grow to sales leaders, but a very few percent. And then a very few percent of sales leaders will grow to be dream builders. And so our people contend to become a salesperson and stay a salesperson. And if if a company looks at those earners and they either promote or die. That is a very objective criteria that companies can look at and, you know, determine whether or not at a very high level is their compensation plan successful. I mean, we're talking about some really in-depth analysis for really fine-tuning a compensation plan with the the tools and the techniques we're we're doing but there are things companies can do without having to spend money with us or any other analyst they just look at people and look
0: at persistence we're going to circle back around to amazon obviously amazon for everybody is the 900 pound gorilla in the room so it's It's not a surprise that several of our guests brought up the need to compete with Amazon. When we talked with Alan Pollard a few months ago, he talked a little bit about the disruption that is coming from Amazon and the things that MLM companies should be doing uh, to compete with Amazon. And one of the things that I'll say is uh, I do think there are ways that, that MLMs have a leg up on Amazon. But they shouldn't ignore Amazon just because they're in a quote-unquote different space. At the end of the day, we're all selling products in an e-commerce world.
6: When we look at the U.S. They've been the leader in the direct selling space for so many years, and so I think, from a certain you know kind of perspective, if we looked at it from just purely a, a business life cycle or a product life cycle. I think it's pretty clear that direct selling in the U S has moved into the very mature market space. It's not a an emerging market. It's very much a mature market. And so what does that mean? Well, I, I think personally, I think the success that I've seen with clients, it is a laser focus on their product, um, with a very, very specific brand. And when I say brand, that's all inclusive. It's understanding the, the specifics of the target market that they're serving um, it's understanding the specifics of the of the consumer behaviors and how they're going to consume that product. And and then being able to put a very, very compelling, uh, you know, brand mark on, uh, communicate all those things that, that build around successful brands. Our companies that are doing those kinds of things, and we're seeing a lot of activity. I think, Kenny, if you sit back and really look overall, we're seeing a lot of our U.S. companies start to embrace more of a consumer-centric brand management, even in direct sales, so that the consumer leads, the product leads, the benefits, the solution, whatever it might be, those are the lead uh, for the direct sales force rather than, as we as we well know, the direct sales uh, industry has had the ability to lead with more of the the business opportunity. So I think we're seeing that pendulum swing and, and as our companies, I think, really embrace um, this kind of new millennium a little bit, I, I think we're going to see some tremendous uh, successes within the direct sales space. But again, I think it's going to be led by a focus on consumer, a focus on product, a focus on that overall consumer experience. And, and those are the things I think are going to really lead the, the, the upgrowth in, in the U.S. market. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating is the disruption that we're starting to see with Amazon. I mean, for 100 bucks a month, I, I feel bad because my wife loves Amazon, and we've got grandkids across the country. So that two-day free shipping with that Prime membership, I mean, we're getting our money's worth on that deal because it, it, it's just something that she uses on a regular basis, and she doesn't even think about going anywhere else because shipping is free at Amazon that's a disruptor. And, and so we're starting to see even those kinds of basic fundamentals there where, where it's not necessarily competing within the industry, but it's it's competing overall in, in, in the general consumer space. So I've seen many of our clients that are really taking a good hard look at, okay, what is the expectation for a consumer customer experience? And, and it's not just about the product and the price, but it's also, again, about the delivery mechanisms, about the, the customer support, as well as the price that goes into that. So, again, clean, clear segmentation between our customers, both retail and preferred, and, and then providing that opportunity. I believe as we move through this, maybe a little bit of a trough, if you will, I think we're going to emerge much stronger. Because, again, if you look at the hallmark of a successful distributorship, what is it? Well, it's retention. It's being able to keep the folks that I bring into the business and that I'm not having to replace those on an annual basis. So those companies who have truly mastered that that product component and that customer experience, while it does take energy and it does take effort and it does, in fact, take costs away um what we're finding is that the retention rates of those companies are much much stronger so several of the clients that I've talked to I mean we we talk a lot about what you know back in the day you and I would have this argument about what is the what is the right commission plan what is the right commissionable amount and and what we're starting to see a little bit is that that commission is being div- divided up a little bit differently in this world because some of those funds that may have gone to our salespeople, to our team leaders, to our executives, what we're seeing is a little more investment in the customer experience. And so as we talk about promotions and incentives, frankly, one of the big number one items is is the shipping component. So how do we, again, you know, incentivize and create retention utilizing a free shipping program and how do we pay for that? Our last two quotes again come from uh, people who
0: I've worked for many years with, talking about where software is going uh, and also the mistakes that early companies make. First, let's hear from Sean Smith talking about where IT has gone and where we see it continuing to go.
3: That's where IT in general has gone over the last 10 years is to cloud-based products where people are buying Uh, a little more specific to their needs rather than trying to buy a full suite of something from one vendor, that they'll go out and say, you know, I really need, in InfoTrax's case, let's call it a commission engine. I need to go out and get a commission engine and I don't necessarily have to buy a transaction engine or the e-commerce segments from InfoTrax. They offer those as well, but I don't have to get them there. I can go out and get a cloud-based commission engine, get a cloud-based e-commerce and tie those two things together. And I think, you know, to answer that question in one word, it's integration, that's that's the big shift we're seeing.
0: Now, here's David Judd and I discussing the complications of growing from a startup uh, to a larger company and and what you have to look for um, when you're starting up as a company just in your early stages. The things that can be more complicated, and, and the place that I've seen people make a mistake starting up too early, is having too many active integrations, where you've got a single person jumping into two or three different systems, uh, and, and that can obviously cause some frustrations.
7: Yeah, the you know in the startup world, you've got a small staff of people who wear a lot of hats. And if you're asking that staff to jump into different systems, different user interfaces, Um, That just adds overhead to the processes that they have to go to. Uh, Phone calls with distributors and customers can take a little longer because I have to move from system to system. And it's certainly frustrating for that user. In addition to all that, it can also increase the risk of mistakes made by that particular CSR uh, or whoever the the person may be. Because they are wearing multiple roles, or because they are fulfilling multiple roles, the, the passive integrations work real nice. So when you're looking for software, you definitely want a software provider that can keep a good UI for the, for the multiple roles where you know you may have CSRs and some admin and some logistics and some accounting, you know, and, and at least there's some aspect that the people that wear the multiple hats can, can live within a UI ideally. And then bring in those passive integrations like you mentioned. Yeah, I may have to go in there as, as a finance person for the company occasionally into my credit card or my tax or whatever, but for the most part, the, the different roles, because they're uh, filled by, mo- by one person, keep that UI, keep that u- user experience as simple as possible. It will save you heartache, it will save you time, um, and allow your people to, to get really good at doing their job. And that
0: does it for our year review podcast. I hope these last two episodes have been helpful for you uh, in remembering some of the great insights and thoughts that we've had from the many leaders around the industry. I hope you'll join us again in our next episode as we'll resume our normal uh, podcast format. I'm your host, Kenny Rollins, and appreciate you joining us. Thank you, as always, to Adam Holdaway and Jana Bangeter for production support. We hope that you guys will join us again and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.